You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome, everyone, to Belaboured number 70. Wow, we're 70. 70? Okay, so um, in international news first. The uh, series of victory continues to reverberate and is now gaining sort of a broader international focus beyond the anti-austerity movement in Greece per se. Um, the new government uh, recently threatened to veto the TTIP, which is a little-known but nonetheless very important uh, trade deal that is currently pending, and its uh, uh, negotiations are ongoing in Brussels right now. Um, and it might be the biggest trade deal ever, um, this transatlantic trade and investment partnership, um, and is basically like NAFTA on steroids, but applied to uh, Europe. What it threatens to do is basically just, you know, provide massive new powers to corporations um, to slash through government regulations and consumer protections, and um, it would basically expand the program of neoliberal development throughout the Eurozone, as well as enhance the power of multinational corporations to keep on what they've been doing, uh, doing what they've been doing for a long time and do it uh, at a greater intensity around the world. Um, One of the key issues that uh, Syriza and other advocates have uh, raised is this proposal um, that might be on the table for an investor state dispute settlement mechanism, which is sort of a supranational, extra governmental, quasi judicial system run by corporations <laughs> that allow multinationals to essentially act as judge, jury, and often executioner when they want to dismantle government regulations that get in the way of profits. Things like, oh, clean air regulations or restrictions on water pollution and all sorts of other pesky red tape issues like that. So, um, Trade deals allow uh, corporations to basically circumvent uh, government sovereignty, essentially, um, in the name of free trade principles. So Syriza uh, obviously took aim at this because it fits well with their general anti-austerity program and also because it helps broaden their sort of overall ethos to the rest of the Eurozone um, by rejecting this deal and threatening to veto it. Um, they're basically saying that we're going to stand up for not just the Greeks, but the people of all of Europe um, who will not benefit, neither as consumers nor as workers when corporations are given this kind of outsized power. So it's just one portent into what might be in store for Syria's international agenda. For some of you, I'm sure you're very sad that the football season is over. I, too, am very upset that I have to wait till next year to see what happens in Marshawn Lynch's ongoing standoff with the league officials. But one labor dispute between the NFL and its workers goes on. I am not talking at this point about the football players, but the cheerleaders many of whom labor for less than minimum wage or even for free and have to spend their own money on uniforms, makeup, travel, fun things like that. Recent years, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, there have been a barrage of lawsuits by these women who cheer for various NFL teams, asserting that their te- the teams not only refuse to obey wage and hour laws, but that rampant sexual harassment, I'm sure you're so shocked, is part of their job as well. Now, a California legislator... Lorena Gonzalez, a former college cheerleader herself, has introduced a bill that would require the state's football teams, including the Oakland Raiders, who are the subject of multiple lawsuits, to classify their cheerleaders as employees, not independent contractors, making them subject to, you know, wage and hour laws. 
She said in a news release, NFL teams and their billionaire owners have used professional cheerleaders as part of the game day experience for decades. They have capitalized on their talents without providing even the most basic workplace protections like a minimum wage. If the guy selling you the beer deserves a minimum wage, so does the woman entertaining you on the field. All work is dignified and the cheerleaders deserve the respect of these basic workplace protections. The NFL teams, of course, are not the only bosses who misclassify workers as independent contractors in order to avoid paying them. They just might be some of the richest. So they can certainly spare minimum wage or, you know, quite a bit more for the cheerleaders. And in another sexual harassment news, over to the Windy City. Um, There is a Ford plant in Chicago that is currently embroiled in a massive sexual harassment scandal. Um, essentially, uh, Labor Notes reports that uh, four women have filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of themselves and 1,000 other <laughs> women uh, working at Chicago's Ford Assembly Plant, um, alleging um, epidemic sexual harassment. Um, and these people are working in the production facilities of uh, Ford, uh, making the Taurus Explorer uh, Lincoln MKS. And um, the epidemic was apparently allowed to roil on while the company stonewalled uh, the various attempts that these uh, women undertook to seek recourse. Uh, For example, Labor Notes reports, um, they said they tried various channels, including the company's harassment hotline and human resources department, their own union, the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, raising complaints with all those bodies, and now they're suing after none of those efforts worked. Several more Ford workers have also filed EEOC complaints, according to the women's lawyer, Keith Hunt. Uh, Christy Van, one of the lead plaintiffs, said that regularly men would just slap you on your behind. People complained of uh, men leaving pictures of their genitals um, in their workplaces, verbal harassment, uh, various forms of uh, inappropriate uh, touching, and often this carried an ugly racial inflection. The four main accusers are all black women and accuse the management, too, of racial discrimination against them uh, in terms of failing to uh, move uh, in response to their complaints. Labor Notes reports that one woman says she was removed from work assignments in retaliation, threatened by supervisors, and after being falsely accused of violating a safety rule, even suspended without pay. Uh, And then one supervisor responded to her complaints by showing her a picture of his genitals and saying, you know you want it. So um, this has actually happened before. Um, There was an earlier lawsuit filed in 1997 that was eventually settled for $9 million, basically agreeing to keep a lid on the issue, and now it's exploding again. Obviously, sexual harassment is not an uncommon thing in many workplaces around the country. The Labor Notes article raises an interesting issue about what happens in unionized workplaces when it's member-against-member harassment and has an interesting sidebar detailing the experiences of various union members in terms of holding their own members um, accountable for actions that victimize others, and it's worth reading. Still more workers who are often sexually harassed. We have talked about domestic worker organizing quite a bit on this podcast, including recently, and the difficulty of creating a labor union of workers who labor in private homes. But last week, about 350 domestic workers from many different nationalities got together and declared the founding of the first trade union for domestic workers, the General Union of Cleaning Workers and Social Care, In Lebanon, supported by the National Federation of Labor Unions and the International Labor Organization, these women, both citizens and migrant workers, came together wearing red and elected an executive board for their union. 
We want to be treated like human beings, like real workers, said Letitia, a Filipino worker who was assaulted and raped by her employer several years ago. With this union, she said, I will no longer feel alone in the face of abuse. These migrant domestic workers in Lebanon operate under the kafala system, where the workers are tied to a particular employer and must obtain that employer's consent if they want to leave their job before their contract is up. Like the guest worker system here in the U.S., which we have also discussed on this podcast, this system leaves workers vulnerable to all sorts of abuses, including having their passports confiscated and miscellaneous other awful things. However, the government of Lebanon is not real thrilled with this domestic worker union. The country's minister of labor threatened to disrupt the conference and says that new laws, not a trade union, will fix domestic workers' problems. Lawyers who helped put together the union rules say that the union is legal, despite what the minister of labor has to say. And the workers are pushing forward, not content to wait for nice elected officials to just hand them more protections. Sound familiar? Back here in the U.S., the U.S. oil industry is on the verge of the biggest strike since 1980, as workers at nine oil refineries have walked out after contract negotiations fell apart, and a full walkout of oil workers around the country remains a possibility. Oil prices, of course, have recently been plummeting, and the industry has been suffering, and the workers are demanding better safety protections, safe staffing, and health care benefits that will not only help the workers in these factories, but the surrounding communities who, of course, face the risk of horrific disaster if anything bad happens at these oil refineries. To tell us about the strike and what's been going on in his industry, we're joined by Steve Gary. He's a machinist at the Tesoro Refinery in Washington State and president of United Steelworkers Local 12591 in Mount Vernon, Washington. He also represents oil workers in the western U.S. on the Rank-and-File Policy Committee, which provides advice and oversight to negotiators who are working to achieve the national pattern objectives of the national oil contract. Thanks for joining us, Steve. So why don't you start with just telling us what brought you to the point of the strike? Uh, talk about the basic issues that are still um, sticking points in the ongoing negotiations and what the current impasse is about. If you know a little bit about the history of oil bargain, you know that safety concerns have been our primary focus for really quite some time. Um, we've experienced uh, far too many um, tragic accidents, serious injuries, fires, uh, and we continue, in spite of the fact that some progress has been made, um, some of it made at the bargaining table in past negotiations, and we continue to experience uh, too much risk in uh, in many um, refineries. And so um, our a number of our um, bargaining goals this time um, um, focus on safety, um, and, and those are, in fact, our priorities. Um, we became convinced some time ago that fatigue is one of the issues that leads to uh, a higher risk in the refineries. The industry has gone so far as to write um, what we call a best practice standard that addresses fatigue. Three years ago, we were able to uh, get some language that got that was to get that implemented in all sites, but that has not gone as well as we hoped. We remain convinced that one of the things that we need to achieve in order to reduce risks that results from fatigue is safe staffing levels. Um, all the companies are different. All of the sites are different. But too often we see uh, that these sites are short-staffed. We represent both operations personnel and maintenance workers in these plants. 
Um, oftentimes, both in operations and in maintenance, we find that um, there there simply aren't enough workers in our bargaining unit to do all the work that's being asked of us. And because of that, our people are too often forced to work overtime shifts, many forced overtime shifts. And that simply increases risk in the plant. Um, we want our people to be at their best. We want them to be um, at their best mentally and physically. And we need to know that they can have their time off when they need it, that they can spend time with their families when they need it, have their vacations when they're scheduled to have them, and, and not be so much subject to this forced overtime. And so what we seek really is some kind of meaningful um, relationship with our employers that allows us to identify what safe staffing looks like. How many people does it take in operations? How many people does it take in maintenance to get the work done? So those are our primary goals that relate to safety. Can you tell us more about the kind of work that you do that other of these workers who are on strike with you do every day um, for people who don't know that much about what it's like to work in an oil refinery? Probably the majority of our members, the, the people in our bargaining unit, um, are operations workers. They're the people that actually walk into what I call the danger zone, the operating units in these facilities every day, every night. These are 24-7, round-the-clock operations. They do the work that actually operates the process, that uses the physical equipment. They start and stop things. They open and close valves. They monitor things. They take samples. Um, they're the ones that that actually operate the plant, and they're the ones that have to quickly understand when something's not right. They're the ones that have to quickly respond to make a change, make an adjustment, do some troubleshooting, figure out what's wrong, um, and keep it right. Because anytime the process gets abnormal, gets out of whack, gets something's not quite right, anytime something like that happens, it increases risk. And so in order to reduce the risk, you have to respond quickly and wisely and, and make it right. So that's what the bulk of our people do. Um, the other portion of our um, bargaining unit employees are maintenance workers, um, usually working day shifts, but also sometimes swing shifts. And they're the people that actually troubleshoot and repair the machinery. They, um, they're the ones that help to isolate it um, so that it can be worked on safely. They're the ones that take things apart troubleshoot, put things back together, test them, prove them, monitor it, that sort of thing. We're talking about pumps and turbines and compressors and valves and things like that. Just to tease out the safety concerns more, um, can you talk about some of the sort of more acute safety issues that often get overlooked. Um, we tend to hear about safety issues in the news and there's like a refinery fire or a big, a big explosion or something like the BP oil rig disaster. Um, can you talk about some of the day-to-day -day concerns that you run into and what the role of, say, regulators are or, you know, union stewards, how they can help monitor conditions and what kind of transparency is there around the kinds of risks that workers are facing? In order to really understand industrial safety the way we do, you have to understand a couple things. We, we tend to break down industrial safety, particularly in these um, chemical and hydrocarbon processing plants. We tend to break it down in two ways. First, we talk about what is called occupational safety or personal safety. Those are the kind of things that affect individuals and the kinds of decisions that individuals can make and the kinds of uh, risks and hazards they may be 
faced with is everything from standing on a ladder to um, uh, maybe machinery that's not guarded or tripping hazards, that kind of thing. Um, the company tends to focus on that. Industry tends to focus on that. Um, I think because of the OSHA law and the way it's written, um, they have to keep a record. I believe it's called the OSHA 300 log they have to keep, which I believe is a public record. Their industry is loath to put anything on those records, and so they, they take that kind of thing very, very seriously, and they tend to focus on that. And they often, in particularly in the past, they tended to measure their success in terms of safe performance by their by their ability to manage and minimize occupational safety um, events and hazards. Uh, but the real risk, from our perspective, in these facilities is what we call process safety risk. That is the risk that comes from the materials that we're handling themselves. And um, the horrible things that happen when these materials um, are released, that is when they, the, all process safety is designed to maintain containment and to make sure that these hazardous chemicals remain contained and controlled at all times. So anything that releases a chemical, um, uh, particularly releases it in any large quantity, presents an immediate risk to both our members, um, the communities where we live, as well as the environment where these plants are located. So that process safety risk has been the most difficult for us to deal with and some of the most difficult risks to reduce. The kind of process safety events um, that happen tend to be relatively low frequency. They don't happen as often as occupational safety um, issues arise. But when they do arise, they tend to have horrible, horrible consequences. And anyone who knows the history of industry probably knows something about that. We unfortunately tend to lose people in numbers. I come from a refinery that uh, just five uh, years ago on Good Friday in 2010, we lost seven of our coworkers in one terrible tragedy. Um, and unfortunately, those kinds of losses are simply far too common in the industry. Um, even though they're, uh, they're less frequent, they're simply unacceptable. And so the bulk of our safety focus has been on trying to reduce process safety risk by trying to get the industry to follow um, what they know they should do, these regulations that even the industry writes for themselves, as well as, as, well as regulations and, and best practice standards that are written by others, getting them to actually do this stuff. Um, from our perspective, the industry knows full well what they're supposed to be doing, what they should do. These regulations, these best practice standards are, for the most part, always written with the word should, almost never written with the word must or shall. So um, getting them to actually do what they know they should do has been a real battle and uh, something that we've been trying to address with our contract bargaining for quite a number of years now. Yeah, um, just to follow up on that, that you, you talked about, um, you know, some of these the difference between sort of process risk and sort of the more individualized kind of behavioral uh, risk factors that OSHA tends to regulate. Do you think there's a difference there between um, some of the structural problems in the industry and, and how that, that's actually a much bigger challenge for the entire industry in terms of changing the entire industrial process? Because um, I imagine that's a lot uh, harder for an industry to change than just say, you know, telling workers that they need to uh, wear more protective gear or, you know, change safety culture or whatever. 
Uh, well, process safety management is a is a part of the OSHA law. Um, I, I think that I think the difference there is that many of the things that should be done in order to effectively manage those process safety risks um, are things that the corporations themselves have to be responsible for. There are quite a number of of elements or or parts of that. Everything from training to inspection work, maintenance planning, procedure writing, all that kind of stuff is part of that. But those are largely functions that that the corporations themselves are responsible for. And quite frankly, they don't like to talk about it, particularly in public. They don't like to discuss these details. Um, And that's Probably one, and, and the, the fact is they're expensive. These corporations are all about maximizing their bottom line. And even though they're, they're really some of the wealthiest corporations in the world, they seek to manage their costs in a way to maximize return to shareholders. And as a result, they, from our perspective, do not do enough to take care of these things that they're responsible for. Um, and, and we need to encourage them or force them, if necessary, to do more of what they, they should do and must do. Switching gears a little bit, I understand that also one of the things that has been um, disputed is the company's use of contract workers in some of these refineries. Can you tell us more about what's going on there, how that became an issue in the industry? It's important to note that these um, facilities are capital-intensive, labor-intensive operations. Um, It takes a lot of money, and it takes um, a lot of labor, and the labor force is increased or it's reduced depending upon the level of the work. Again, I think I mentioned that these these are 24-7, around-the-clock operations. There's uh, quite a bit of maintenance work that can't be done until the equipment is actually shut down, cleaned out, and you can gain safe access to it. So what the industry does is uh, they'll run for some time. It depends on the unit and on the situation and all that, but they'll often run for some time, a year, two, three years, four years, maybe or more, and then they'll, they'll plan what we call a shutdown or a turnaround, where they'll, they'll shut down large parts of the plant, and they'll have to bring in thousands of workers in order to get this work done in a relatively short period of time so they can get back up and running. Um, and so contractors are a constant element in our in our working environment. They're always there and always have been there, and their numbers go up and down. But we do, um, in oil bargaining, have what we feel, and for some time we felt we've had a problem with contractors doing what we call routine maintenance. That is the kind of work that I do, for example, and my coworkers do, the kind of work that's done day in, day out, every month, every year, and We've seen an attrition of our bargaining unit. We've seen an attrition in the numbers of our own um, union members doing that work. Uh, there's been a tendency to replace a person who retires with a contractor. And that has, from our perspective, led and will continue. If we can't get a handle on it, it will continue to lead to increased risk, quite frankly. Um, our members tend to be better trained. They tend to be better experienced. Um, they have the power to follow proper procedures. Uh, they're not so apt to be forced to do things that increase risk. And so our focus, it's important to note, is in trying to establish and renew the uh, suitable numbers of our own maintenance work 
workers so that, again, we can reduce risk. We can minimize forced overtime. We can maximize the number of, of well-trained and, and properly experienced people doing this maintenance work. Um, because, quite frankly, um, another element of process safety is what we call mechanical integrity. That's does the equipment actually contain the process. Well, every time we take something apart or troubleshoot it or put it back together and prove it, um, if we don't get that right, we could have we could have a disaster. We could have a, a disastrous release. And so we want those trained and experienced people doing that work. And and we feel that over time our numbers have we've, our numbers have suffered due to attrition. And we need to uh, we need to have some uh, way to address that. So this is the largest strike in the oil industry since I guess 1980. Obviously, the labor movement was in a very different place back then, and strikes were, if huge ones not that frequent, still much more frequent than they have been recently. Can you tell us why there was sort of relative labor peace in the industry for so many years, and why you think now that has changed, that management is not willing to make a deal? I think that's a little harder to answer. I, I'm going to say there's an awful lot of moving parts to that answer. Um, I would say that the refining facilities in our country are increasingly aging. They're getting older, and as they get older, they require more intense inspection, more intense maintenance planning. Many of them were built with materials that are not as um, suitable for the process as more modern materials are. In, in my past, and this is before I worked in the refining segment, I worked uh, logging and construction and shipbuilding. As recently as the 70s and 80s, in my own personal working experience, working people, and certainly the corporations they work for, treated safety rather haphazardly. It was almost considered a part of the job that somebody was going to die. Somebody was going to be seriously injured. And, and I, I think as a society, we've, we've understood more recently that that's simply unacceptable because the risk can be reduced if we work at it. Um, and it's our responsibility to try to do that. And so, again, as the plants are aging in the refining sector, we, we find more risk um, as our understanding of, of what needs to be done to reduce it. Um, has been developed, we we become more determined to do that. Um, and so um, we find ourselves in this situation where where we feel we have no other recourse than to do what we've done. Can you just talk about for those of us who are uh, you know who haven't witnessed some of the more massive strikes in in u s. labor history? Can you talk about sort of the decision uh, leading up to the strike and uh, what kind of discussion there was uh, with among union members? Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm going to have to try to describe a little bit about how oil bargaining works um, in order to help you understand. But so just as an outline, we're here trying to negotiate a small number of items that were determined by um, three or four hundred delegates to a conference back in October. These delegates were elected by their co-workers to represent them at this conference. The goal of the conference, as I said, was to try to determine those issues that were of the highest priority around the country in all locations. And, and so that was done. That this, this proposal, this national policy proposal, 
was developed back in October. That proposal then went back to rank-and-file workers all across the country in these facilities, and it was presented to them, it was discussed with them, debated with them, and they had to vote on whether they found this acceptable, whether they agreed that these were the highest priorities around the country, and they did. And when they voted to do that, they also authorized strike authority for the international union officials who do the bargaining. Now, as for deciding whether to strike or not, first I've described how, where the authority to, to call the strike comes from. It comes from the membership. But as for the decision to do it, I think it's fair to say that, um, as you mentioned in an earlier question, it's been a very long time since there's been strike activity in the oil industry. And I think one of the realities of that is the industry at some point probably comes to feel that uh, our membership is perhaps afraid of them, perhaps unprepared or unwilling to do something like that. And their behavior at the bargaining table, I think, reflects some of that. Depends a little bit on which company you're dealing with, but I think increasingly, I think the industry is really quite arrogant at the bargaining table, really quite indifferent um, and outspoken in dismissing what we feel are very, very important concerns of our members. And it's gotten to a point now when you simply have to impress upon them that we're not fooling here. We're serious about this. This is what our members, these issues are what our members have said are their priorities, things that, we, that must be addressed in some meaningful way. And we can't simply accept some kind of milk toast language that really does nothing to help us solve the problem. Uh, because we were faced with nothing but that. And then at the very last minute, in the very last day, the industry decided to walk away without giving us another proposal that was, you know, in any way better than what we'd seen earlier. The decision was made to do what we had to do to get their attention. And so that's, that's what you've seen us do. Right now, the oil industry is uh, kind of in a tough spot. We hear a lot in the news about oil prices plummeting around the world. Do the overall circumstances in the oil industry and the oil market affect uh, the collective bargaining process? Well, I'm, I'm no economist. I'm a machinist. But um, I think I have a feel for that. I'm certainly an awful lot of people with a lot of different opinions about that. And it's also important to understand that there are a number of different business models that work in the oil industry. The big multinational companies like Shell, BP, Conoco, uh, ExxonMobil, those kind of companies, they make a significant portion of their of their profits, their revenue, by pumping crude oil out of the ground and selling it, the raw material. Um, certainly that portion of their business is, is in serious decline right now. They're not making near as much on that side of their business as they uh, are accustomed to or want to. Um, but then, again, the, those companies are what we call fully integrated. That is, they make a profit at a whole number of stages um, as the material moves from out of the ground to to the gas station, right, to the end user. And so they make they they also make money in the refining sector where they take the raw material, right, and they turn it into a into a finished product. They make money in that part of the process, and they also make money in retail when they sell it uh, into the economy. Um, so I would say that um, to the extent they're now looking at diminished profits from crude oil itself, probably the role that refining plays in their profitability, at least short term, is increased. If anything, they're probably more sensitive. But that's, again, that's a rank and file perspective. 
I would note that there are other companies, Tesoro is an example, that doesn't really have any of their own crude oil per se. Their business model is to make money almost exclusively with uh, refining and uh, then retail. And so they also are, if anything, sensitive to anything that would disrupt their refining um, capacity. So I would disagree, actually, that the current slump in crude oil prices really somehow insulates these companies from uh, influence or or something. I, I would say, if anything, it's just the opposite. But, of course, these companies are trying to run these facilities on their own in many cases uh, with our people out. Um, I guarantee you that will increase risk, uh, particularly over time, because, again, we're talking about people who probably aren't very well trained to do this work. They didn't sign up for this stuff. They're being forced to do it now. I'm talking about forced overtime again, multiple shifts, day after day after day. Um, I don't know that they're going to be too happy about this if once they're into it for a while. And, and the, the risk is increased. The chance of making a mistake simply goes up day after day if they try to do that. Yeah. And oil companies in general are, are pretty unpopular in this country, um, criticized for a lot of different reasons. When you mention the, the kind of safety concerns that not only affect the workers, but affect the surrounding environment and the communities around these refineries, do you think it's possible for oil workers to make common cause with environmental activists, community members, to help put pressure on the energy industry I mean, to treat your workers better, but also to clean up its practices more generally. Oh, yes. I, I think without a doubt, there's an awful lot of our safety concerns. We, we have common cause with the environmental activists, the environmental community. And, and I think for the most part, our members recognize this. Our, our bargaining unit members, they're campers, they're hikers, they're boaters, they're hunters, they're fishermen. They understand why it's important to keep the environment clean, and they also understand how harmful these these materials are that we work with. Um, and in fact, our people work every day and every night to try to minimize or reduce or eliminate the chance that these materials may be introduced into the environment. And so I, without a doubt, there is um, a great deal of opportunity um, for um um, working people in our industry and the environmental community to work together, and as it should be, um, because we we simply share a common goal. Yeah, um, it's interesting because you know certainly one of the areas where um, environmental concerns and industrial safety overlap is with environmental health, and I think um, you know a lot of workers live in refinery communities, and those are very much affected by. Um, what goes on um, in terms of industrial safety at these plants on multiple fronts. Indeed. Strikes on this scale are pretty rare uh, in general, not just in the oil industry. And I was wondering if you could reflect as uh, someone who's been with the labor movement for such a long time and seen so much, what do you think about the strike as a tactic today? And why don't uh, unions use it more in general? Well, that's, that's another big question with a whole lot of moving parts. Uh, to a certain extent, it may be that we're victims of our own success. We have been very successful at gaining good wage and benefit packages for the most part for our, our members. We've also come through a time now when um, an awful lot of older and more experienced workers have retired over the last 10, 20 years or so, and they've been replaced, of course, by younger people, many of whom um, have never experienced anything like this, many of whom never learned anything about this in public in their public education. 
And so there's prob- there probably is a, a certain reluctance or fear of, of the unknown there in our workforce. But again, as people spend more time in the refineries, even young people, and as they learn their jobs and as they learn a little bit about our history, and more importantly, as they consider the risk that they face every time they go to work, they become increasingly convinced that certain issues simply must be addressed. And, and so we have before us today several issues that our members feel simply must be addressed. And, and for that reason, they're willing to, to risk some of their income in order to see if they can't, can't get these issues resolved. And I think it's probably important to note that all of them, no matter how they feel about this, um, are going to learn a great deal not just about how to stand up and fight back, not, not just how to make their voices heard. They're going to learn a great deal about what their fathers and their grandfathers, their, their grandmothers and their mothers went through in their working lives. Um, perhaps aspects of that that they never really paid much attention to when they were young. I, I think there's probably some invaluable learning that's going to go on here. And so I think that's true in the oil industry. I'm not going to try to speak to the labor movement in general. Um, obviously, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that plays into the success of unionism, uh, not to mention corporate control of government, state government, federal government, rulemaking, um, labor law, and that sort of thing. Um, it's certainly not like we have all the laws helping us to organize or to or to do union work, just the opposite. The, the law tends to work against us. It's oftentimes very, very difficult um, to do this kind of work, uh, given the, the way the legal system works. And so finally, I guess, what are the next steps? You guys have been out on strike for a couple of days now. Where do you see things going? Where are things as we stand right now? When should we check in with you to see if you've won yet? <laughs> well, um I think it's important to note that only, I believe it's nine locations have been called out on strike. There are just nine out of, I believe, more than 60, 70 locations or something. So it's not like we really have an oil strike yet. Um, it, it is true that it could turn into one if um, the industry, for whatever reason, uh, fails or is unwilling to adequately address our concerns, but right now it's not. Um, It's just started. Uh, Our negotiators continue to talk to the lead company, Shell Oil, um, has been uh, chosen by the industry to speak for them on these issues. Um, Our negotiators continue to speak with them, um, which has got to be seen as as a a bit of optimism, um, but it remains to be seen whether those talks are productive. And so um, whether this strike business grows or is resolved really depends upon the nature of those conversations and and, and what happens at the bargaining table. And that was Steve Gary, president of the United Steelworkers Local 12591 in Mount Vernon, Washington, talking about the big oil strike. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at DescentMagazine.org. And now, ARG! I wish I'd written that. So my pick for the week is uh, Matt Sheehan at Huffington Post. He wrote an article called China Nears Peak Coal, But Its Rust Belt Pays the Price. 
And uh, first, the title of this piece intrigued me because it's not often that you hear um, the term Rust Belt used to refer to another country's uh, industrial towns. But here we have the example of China. It's interesting to see how uh, China's industrial towns, small cities really, um, on the interior uh, are paying such a steep price. And the plight of the workers there really mirrors what uh, workers in this country's Rust Belt have been going through. Um, he basically takes us through kind of a very sad uh, crisis situation in China's uh, industrial towns, old steel factory towns, many of which used to be part of the thriving breakneck industrialization of the country and have since uh, really seen an economic crunch as well as epidemic levels of pollution. And the death of the uh, of you know these industrial towns really shows um, what the boom bust cycle uh, economy is really doing to China. And we tend to think of China in this country as this sort of like magical nebulous place that just absorbs U.S. jobs and um, you know pumps out um, cheap products. But um, this is actually you know many parts of China are just an industrial wasteland, much like the deindustrialized zones of the United States. Um, and you know the coal industry there. Um, is now reached basically uh, something akin to uh, an unsustainable level of production as well as um, unsustainable levels of pollution. And so uh, as China has grown to become the world's second largest economy, um, it is now the number one emitter of greenhouse gases, uh, consuming nearly as much coal as the rest of the world combined. And China's coal use could peak um, in the coming years and then begin to decline. And they recently um, rolled out a big climate change initiative um, that is designed to kind of curb the use of coal and switch to cleaner technologies. But none of that change is coming soon enough for many Chinese cities. And uh, more importantly, the workers there are suffering right now, um, not only because of the uh, uh, levels of pollution that everyone is suffering there and these, uh, you know, massive smog uh, clouds that are draping over cities like Beijing. But um, it's also because they've had huge troubles with the closing of factories. Um, polluting factories have been shuttered uh, in, in recent months, and, and as well as just um, you know uh, factories shuttering because of you know just volatility in the economy overall. Many issues with unpaid wages, lots of strikes, and uh, other forms of unrest have been exploding um, across China in recent months. Um, and they're also starting to face an economic slowdown, which is has serious implications not only for a Chinese economy, but uh, for the world economy as well. And this is all coming in the context of um, climate change and the oncoming climate crisis. And so uh, I think the article does a good job of focusing on this one town called Tangshan, showing the kind of suffering that the workers are undergoing there. And it's kind of akin to what the workers in Appalachia or Detroit are experiencing today and experiencing generations ago. And it'll be interesting to see in the coming generation how China chooses to deal with the structural crisis, um, given how the U.S. began the same battle decades ago, um, from the coal mine workers uh, of Appalachia to uh, you know the auto workers of Detroit, and now the steel workers of Tangshan. It seems like no one really knows how to deal with this slow-burning crisis. And until we find a better and more sustainable alternative, workers around the world are going to be in the same desperate situation. If you watched the Super Bowl this Sunday, you probably saw McDonald's latest attempt at brand rehabilitation. The company has been suffering a slide in sales after a couple of years of strikes by its employees, and it was just hit with a lawsuit by its workers alleging racial and sex discrimination in its stores. 
So its latest attempt at making itself look better was a commercial that, building on its recent branding efforts built around the idea of, quote, lovin'. Except this commercial and its attendant publicity campaign actually place new demands on those same employees who've been striking. Um, As Bryce Covert points out in her piece at The Nation, a job at McDonald's now includes singing and dancing on demand. The idea put forward in this commercial is that random customers at McDonald's will now get the chance to, quote, pay with lovin'. What this means, apparently, is that a cashier at McDonald's can ask you, instead of for the few dollars that it costs to pay for your meal, to call your mother, do a dance, fist bump them, or perhaps some other lovin' performance is yet unspecified. As Covert points out, this is yet another demand of for emotional labor from the low-wage workers at McDonald's. As she writes, the workers are being told to put on a performance for customers in order to get a performance back. And as she notes, the performance of emotional labor covers up the real working conditions of the person pasting on a fake smile. We are meant to think that McDonald's is not only a great place to eat, but a great place to work. As if its, worker, if its workers are singing and dancing and fist-bumping people all over the place, well, they must be having fun, right? Never mind that they make $7 an hour. Further, she points out, the endless performance of emotional labor has an extra penalty for women. Customers who don't get that it's just a job might instead take it as an invitation. She's flirting with me, right, guys? Sexual harassment, once again, we're back to that subject, is rampant in the food service industry, and McDonald's itself, of course, is facing charges that supervisors in its stores inappropriately touched female employees, sent them sexual pictures, and tried to solicit sex from them. So, McDonald's, if you want to rehabilitate your brand and show some lovin', maybe you could just give those employees a raise instead. That $4.5 million or so you paid for that Super Bowl ad could help out a bunch of minimum wage workers. And you can hold on to that lovin'. <laughs> Seriously, save your lovin'. Yeah. Save your lovin'. Yeah. But here at Belabored, we love you. And we want to hear from you, as always. You can tell us if you've been asked to pay with lovin' at McDonald's. If you are an oil worker on strike, if you are a domestic worker in the U.S., Lebanon, or anywhere else in the world, tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twenty five, hell no, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org and join us online using hashtag belabored. Because it's